Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one program and co-director of sarcoma care at Cleveland Clinic. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Nate Mesco, Center Director of Orthopedic Oncology and Co-Director of Sarcoma Care at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Dan Joyce, a surgical oncologist in the Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute here at Cleveland Clinic. They are here today to talk to us about a team approach to treat retroperitoneal sarcoma. Welcome, Nate. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maybe to start off, tell us a little bit about your roles here at Cleveland Clinic. So, Nate, you want to start? Thanks for having us, uh, inviting us to be part of this. Um, some may ask why I'm here for a retroperitoneal sarcoma discussion. Um, I spend a lot of time with uh, many of my surgical colleagues. I think uh, one of the, the unique attributes of what sarcoma is, um, is that it picks virtually any place in the body uh, to present, whether that's in inside the cranium all the way down to the toe and anything in between. Um, the pelvis and the abdomen and the spine area, kind of the mid section, um, is a very high yield place where lots of surgeons uh, have to work together in order to take care of these complex problems. Uh, I become involved in that scenario, um, especially in pelvis sarcomas and retroperitoneal, and then also just working with our team, um, you know, helping lead the sarcoma program here at Cleveland Clinic. It's an, an honor and a privilege to be able to get to work with all of this, uh, these world-class physicians, um, both on the medical side as well as on the surgical side. Very good. Dan? So I trained initially in uh, general surgery here at Cleveland and then uh, pursued a fellowship in complex general surgical oncology in Roswell Park in Buffalo, uh, where a lot of the focus was on complex, rare, and unusual malignancies, uh, which the sarcoma family uh, falls into. Um, and I think, um, you know, as Nate pointed out, this is a true multidisciplinary um, specialty. A lot of the culture here at the clinic, um, you know, focuses on organ-based diseases. That's how our institute models are uh, set up. And I think that works very, very well for the vast majority of diseases. But for sarcoma, I think we really go beyond all of that. So in our tumor board, you know, I think we have representatives from, you know, almost every institute um, where, you know, we have the Orthopedic Institute, Digestive Diseases, Thoracic, Cardiovascular, and all of that. So I think we all very much think about this as a disease, not as an organ-limited thing. So as um, surgeons, um, I think we, we kind of figure out what the map looks like and, and what specialties we need there to take care of these diseases. That's, uh, that's, that's absolutely true. And when we talk about retroperitoneal sarcoma, so let's, uh, we have a diverse group that may be listening in. So let's just sort of define what we're talking about. What is a, so Dan, maybe you could tell us, what is a retroperitoneal sarcoma? Where's the retroperitoneum? What kind of cancers are we typically thinking about there? So what I often say to patients, it's, it's the back of the abdomen, and typically these sarcomas arise from the glue that holds us together. So the commonest entity would be a liposarcoma or a sarcoma of fatty tissue, and they can come in a, in a various spectrum of well-differentiated liposarcoma, where the problem really is just a local issue in the back of the abdomen and really a surgical issue 
uh, maybe with radiation to occasionally ice the cake. And then we can have much more aggressive variants uh, where not only do we have a local problem, but we have to think about a systemic issue with metastatic disease with high-grade dedifferentiated liposarcomas. Uh, the probably next most common would be a leiomyosarcoma, uh, which is a tumor of smooth muscle, and they can uh, arise from in numerous locations, up to and including the vena cava and the vasculature. So again, highlighting that, um, you know, we just done a big caval sarcoma last week uh, where we worked with vascular surgeons who who rarely, if ever, uh, encounter malignant disease. Um, and that's a key case where we need their help, but they heavily rely on us to kind of police them from an oncologic standpoint. Uh, and they appreciate that, and we need their skills as well. So, Nate, uh, we've, we've talked already about the wide range of disciplines involved, the number of surgeons, you know, maybe urologists involved in vascular surgeons, and, and you as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon. Tell us a little bit about how this all comes together. How, how do we coordinate care as a program put together sort of a, a group that can work so, so well together? How do we do that? Yeah, I think um, one of the first keys is we all got to enjoy working with one another um, because there is a lot of communication and there's a lot of sacrifice, frankly, on behalf of each of us um, to make something happen, to coordinate a lot of schedules, to herd cats, so to speak. Um, and you know, when a patient arrives, they come oftentimes with a diagnosis, um, a lot of anxiety, and maybe so, some scans to look at. And, you know, we start the process by identifying the correct disciplines. Um, I think with retroperitoneal sarcomas, um, there is a lot of potential anatomy involved, including um, the intestines, including the vasculature that Dr. Joyce talked about, including the spine or some of the nerves and muscles, um, including the pelvis bone. And that is, um, you know, anatomy that while it's all in the same area, there are certain uh, specialties that are more comfortable with certain aspects of that. And so it honestly, from a team approach, is more fun to, to work together with your colleagues. I think it's safer and more efficient uh, and decreases the risk of complication to work with your colleagues. But that doesn't just start when you get to the operating room. There's m oftentimes multiple weeks, if not a month or more, of planning, of coordinating, of testing, of discussing at our tumor board. I think the penultimate area where we really kind of finalize and fine-tune that plan is at our multidisciplinary sarcoma board where our radiologists present the pictures, um, our pathologists present the tissue that we've sampled to prove the diagnosis, um, and then we discuss as a team with uh, the experts from the, from the chemotherapy aspect, from the radiation aspect, from the pathology, radiology, and surgical aspects to come up with a fine-tuned plan that will best treat the diagnosis given in the location given uh, for the most optimal outcome. So, Nate, you mentioned something that I think oftentimes is missed, and that's the really the importance of pathology review and making sure that, that that's really, you know, if, if someone's coming in, they've had a diagnosis, is that really the diagnosis? So, you know, as surgeons, you guys are, are removing things, you're not choosing chemotherapies. But Dan, maybe tell us a little bit about how the, the pathology review and actually knowing what that tumor is before you go in to, to deal with it, how, how, how important is that? I think that's critical, and I think one of the highlights of our program is that the conversation about the patient begins long before they arrive here. So we have a wonderful, you know, cancer answer line 
that essentially assembles all of this information so that when these patients arrive on site, if their imaging is not complete, that really within the course of a morning, um, we can really get to that place where we can start the decision-making process. We like to have the slides on site beforehand. And many of these patients have been two, three months going around searching for a diagnosis. Um, and I think coordinating all of that ahead of time. So we have a wonderful back office staff that make all of this possible, that puts us in the position to make the diagnosis. I agree that pathological review is essential. Many times, you know, the patient are told that it's spindle cell neoplasm. Uh, we recently had a patient who was referred in with a recurrent gist in the abdomen, and it turned out on review here and after next generation sequencing, it was in fact a rare synovial sarcoma. Uh, and that has absolutely tremendous difference in the patient's treatment. The patient had been on inappropriate imatinib or Gleevec for a, a long period of time, when in fact a radical different approach um, was, was required. So it can be night and day, and, and, and certainly uh, can have a major impact on, on um, survival as well. We have a, a large center. We have a lot, of, uh, a lot of disciplines involved. Who's an ideal patient? So, Nate, who would be an ideal patient that we should see compared to someone that has a small um, mass in their abdomen? Should we see anyone with a retroperitoneal sarcoma? Could some of those be handled more in the community? Give some guidance on who should be referred here. Yeah, I think um, I'd like to hear Dr. Joyce on this as well. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, um, I think sarcoma is because it's such a rare entity because the, you know, the quotes would suggest in many practices that a physician who is not specialized in sarcoma doesn't have a specialized practice or niche in practice will only see one or two of these in their entire 30 year career. So it's hard to maintain a semblance of expertise and awareness uh, of even recognition uh, before the treatment process starts if you're doing this on a very, very irregular basis. You know, I think one of the things with retroperitoneal masses is that um, unlike extremity masses, surgeons are less tempted to go and operate on many of these masses without knowing what they are. On extremities, on arms, a bump right underneath the skin, the surgeon may say, oh, that's easy to take out. That's not, not really going to harm the patient. And then have a, have a surprise when the pathology comes back and what they thought was a fatty tumor wasn't actually a fatty tumor. Um, you know, in the retroperitoneum, if somebody's having symptoms and uh, imaging suggests that there's a mass there, I think that's a very uh, low threshold for a uh, community practice to, to refer that simply so that they don't have to deal with the headache of all the, the items that need to be checked off in order to appropriately get this patient to the optimal treatment. Send it to, to a center that is able to do this every single day. Um, and, and let us handle those headaches. Let us handle that, that plan and, that, and whatnot. Um, so we're always willing to communicate, to, to partner, and um, I very often will call the referring providers just to get a story and to keep them in the loop in terms of like, okay, thank you for the referral and here's the plan moving forward. And, and many times, especially if they need radiation or they need um, systemic therapy, um, we'll often partner with their local providers as well. We help quarterback things, but um, we need partners um, that can help us locally. Dr. Joyce? I would agree. And I think, you know, as we have alluded to, you know, no physician is an island for this disease. 
So for example, a surgeon may be comfortable doing a certain operation, but they may not have the radiology backup to help take care of the postoperative complications. Um, they may not have a radiation oncologist that's comfortable in treating sarcoma since it's so rare. And the other point is not everyone needs an operation. So many times we see patients with masses that do in fact turn out to be benign. There are even some masses that can be hot on, on PET scans like schwannomas that do not need an operation. So sometimes we're actually providing reassurance and just surveying a patient. So it's not that everyone has to have an operation. So it can be figuring out who in fact does not need an operation. Uh, and I think also, you know, there are lots of other things other than sarcomas that can turn up in the retroperitoneum. Germ cell tumors that may never need a surgeon uh, and need, you know, medical therapy. So I would, you know, I would say I think that that initial biopsy and diagnosis and workup, you know, that probably the, the most important decisions are made outside of the operating room. So unless that you have that whole team uh, to help you out, which is a pretty unusual, you know, you need to be at a pretty big center to have absolutely everyone to make those decisions. I would say if there's any doubt at all, we're, we're happy to see them. And, um, and many times we send them right back to you, but it's often a well uh, worthwhile visit for the patient and we can often provide reassurance. And if it's something bigger and more involved, we obviously are delighted to take care of that as well. So Dan, you mentioned radiation. We're going to get back to that in a second, but just carrying on, we've talked about sort of patient evaluation and care prior to even them coming here for an evaluation. We've talked about um, kind of the interoperative, all the people involved. Nate, we've talked about this in program meetings before. What about the, the ability to take care of really complex patients oftentimes sort of in that perioperative setting? So I think that's another strength that we have is if people have complex medical needs, it's not just getting through the surgery, but then how do you get you know, past the surgery and back home in a, in a meaningful way. So can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, surgery, obviously, if surgery is necessary, which oftentimes it is, uh, there's, there's a recovery involved. And, you know, most oncologic surgery requires some kind of sacrifice of collateral anatomy um, to get the cancer out. You know, our number one goal in the vast majority of these cancers is to get the cancer out cleanly. Okay, sometimes that's not possible. Occasionally, we'll do surgery to help with symptoms and not necessarily aimed at cure. Um, but the majority of these patients, we are attempting to cure um, to the best of our ability. So when the patient wakes up and they're recovering and they, the, the surgery is successful from, a, from we removed the cancer and we did it with a, with a clean cuff of tissue surrounding it, the patient may still have, um, you know, recovery of their bowels, sometimes of their bladder. They may have loss of nerve function. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, the long-term follow-up by not only the surgical teams, but, you know, outside of cancer, the physical therapy teams, we have an excellent uh, physical medicine uh, and, and rehabilitation team that oftentimes patients can, especially if there's nerves involved or the spine is involved with these retroperitoneal sarcomas, the patients can go and, and spend some uh, two or three weeks of a pretty intense rehab in order to fast track their ability to become confident and, and, and learn to adapt um, with their new kind of baseline and then once they become comfortable with the the recovery and we've kind of uh, navigated through the waters of potential complications um, then there's the whole surveillance aspect that's also necessary you know I, I think the majority of our 
you know, our work uh, years after the surgery is following these patients um, who have been diagnosed with this rare type of a cancer because there's a potential it could either grow back in the same place or we could find it somewhere else. And getting regular frequent exams and scans is absolutely essential to, to, a, um, uh, to the most optimal outcome. Very good. Dan? I would agree with that. And, and I think the other specialty that we often forget about are palliative care. And we often include those very early on. Some of these patients come with, you know, very large masses. They can come with a large component of neuropathic, chronic centralized pain, even prior to surgery. And they can need, you know, ongoing support, not in the sense of end of life care, but in terms of control of pain. A lot of these patients have anxiety. It's a traumatic process going through, whether it be radiation, chemotherapy, a large operation. And I think that group as well provide tremendous support to these patients where Nate and I often are, you know, we're like plumbers or carpenters. We take things out, put them back together, and we're very compassionate people, but are kind of, we're constantly thinking about margins and getting things out, and that's appropriate. But the palliative care folks, they leave that to us. They leave the medical oncology to you and so on and so forth. And they focus on these patients as whole people. And, you know, sometimes it may be just something like insomnia that to me, I'm like, oh, well, you've healed perfectly fine from surgery, but that could be the single biggest issue to the patient. So I think all of that big family of support uh, really helps these patients resume, you know, as much as normal life as possible. Tell me a little bit about uh, radiation therapy and how that's sort of um, sort of the issues related to radiation and retroperitoneal sarcomas. So how much time do you have? So, um, you know, for radiation is an adjunct to good surgery. I think the, the ultimate goal is a margin negative resection for a sarcoma, regardless of the location in the body. But by virtue of the location of the retroperitoneum, there are a lot of structures that we can't cut out or shouldn't cut out. So historically, we've used a lot of radiation um, to treat the margin, almost always in the preoperative setting as the tumor itself kind of acts as a spacer to keep the bowel away, which is quite sensitive to radiation. And there was a recent randomized controlled trial, the STRAS trial, that really was a negative trial with respect to preoperative radiation for the treatment of sarcoma. Unfortunately, like a lot of our data in sarcoma, um, it's quite heterogeneous. And the story hasn't been quite put to bed in terms of, I often think about the role of radiation preventing a local recurrence. Where would that recurrence be? What would the morbidity of the recurrence be? If it's, you know, if it's sitting under the liver tucked away, that's fine. If it's sitting on top of the femoral nerve, that's a different recurrence. So we here, you know, still have a, we use a fair amount of radiation. I think we've backed off based on the trial. But we talk about it in our multidisciplinary tumor board. We also have an interest in a newer hypofractionated regimen. That means where patients just get five days of radiation rather than a historic 25 fraction or five-week protocol. And we're currently studying that on a, you know, a, a trial here at the clinic. And I think that's something that's exciting. And we'll be interested to see what our data shows. So radiation is not gone from the retroperitoneum. Uh, but I think we're a little less liberal with it nowadays. And it depends a little bit in, on the histology as well. If it, there's something high grade that's going to have a 
metastatic potential, something like a leiomyosarcoma, often they don't recur as much as a well-diff liposarcoma, which often we can manage surgically anyway. So it's, it's a complicated area, and I think the STRAS trial has been very helpful, but it certainly hasn't answered the question definitively. As with most trials in sarcoma. Agreed. And I think the key thing is you have to say, does my patient fit this trial? Can I apply this trial to my patient? And that's not always true in every case. Yeah. Taking a step back, Nate, where are the gaps? Where do we need to make improvements in management of retroperitoneal sarcomas? Well, I, I think even just beyond retroperitoneal, I think sarcoma in general, um, I think collaboration um, is one of the biggest gaps that we see, uh, especially in the surgical world. Um, a lot of institutions, a lot of really well-known institutions that are really good at what they do um, are doing it on an island in a lot of respects. And, you know, the fact that it is such a rare disease, it could take literally decades to get appropriately powered numbers from a single institution to actually answer a question with the utmost confidence uh, when it comes to appropriately done research. I think, um, you know, the fact that Cleveland Clinic is working, kind of extrapolating what we've done with extremity sarcoma and trying to take five weeks of radiation therapy and squish it into a biologically equivalent five-day course and get the tumor out literally a couple months before we historically would do it um, is a big deal. But again, it, the numbers are going to be limited and the goal of something like this is to give kind of a taste to the sarcoma world to say, hey, here's a pilot. Here's something that we've tried. It certainly is not inferior, dare I say, maybe even uh, better in some respects. Why don't we actually partner with each other? You know, we have all these big meetings that uh, we'd like this uh, international and national meetings that we talk about sarcoma and say, okay, let's take the, the beginning results of this and let's actually create a partnership of all these um, large institutions around the world, um, which the Strauss trial is a good example of that, um, you know, in Europe, um, and, and continue to take that to the next level. I think, you know, surgical techniques, um, you know, one of the other things that I would love to be able to use is to figure out a way that we can see intraoperative margins live. Um, that sometimes can be very difficult with some of these infiltrative tumors uh, where you can see and feel the actual mass, but there may be microscopic tentacles, you know, in some way to either have, you know, some kind of a dye injected or virtual augmented reality or some kind of a technology that can give the surgeon the absolute utmost confidence that I have gotten all of this, not just what I can see and feel with my eyes, but the microscopic areas um, can really, I think, enhance what uh, you're able to tell a patient in terms of what needs to be sacrificed to get this out and hopefully decrease the risk of having to deal with recurrences down the road. Those are two, two items that come to mind. Dan, any gaps for you? I, I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's all about trying to you know, do a safe operation in difficult circumstances. And I think our outcomes have improved dramatically over recent, you know, decades due to advances in imaging. So I agree with Nate that, you know, taking imaging to the next step with potentially virtual reality and things like that, that really, you know, I think all of us try and plan the exact operation in our head 
um, prior to ever making incision. This is something that has to be pre-planned. And of course you have contingency plans, but I think hopefully we, if we can move the needle just a little bit there, we can even increase the precision even more. Very good. Well, Dan, Nate, appreciate your insights and being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. To make a direct online referral to our Tossig Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.